This podcast includes explicit language and situations. It is intended for adults 18 years of age and older. These thoughts and opinions are those not of any specific group, employer, or individual. Listener discretion is advised. From the Spade and Archer Studios, welcome to Behind the Yard Sign with your hosts, Justin M. Reardon and Kelly Hanahan. All right, Justin, welcome back. This is our eighth episode. We have a really great guest yeah. right smack in the middle of this episode who she's kind of a legend here in Portland, not just in real estate, but in just Portland business in general. So it's gonna be really awesome. First, I wanted to talk about, sometimes we just like to digest some things that have happened to us over the weeks and like, so people can kind of get a view of real estate and how things sell through our eyes. I mean, all our job is, of course, is to merchandise homes for sales and all these agents are running around doing all the other hard Parts of getting us of getting a house sold. But let's talk a little bit about something that just happened to us in and around a property that was previously staged by somebody else. Is that right? And then they just never staged the ADU, but we chose to advocate for that. And then basically what happened? Yeah, this is a super interesting story. So we were contacted a couple of months ago. I think it was around four months ago or so. This is kind of innocuous of a couple of projects that have happened recently. Contacted a couple of months ago to stage the house. The immediate phone call was like, it's too expensive. Okay, well, let us know if you need help in the future. Because honestly, I talked to a person today on the phone and the first thing she said was, I was blown away at how expensive your pricing was. And I said, I'll tell you a secret. And she goes, what's the secret? And I said, we're worth every penny. (laughs) How did she respond to that? Oh, okay. I said, do you have any other questions? <laughs> and we actually had a really good conversation. Once we got past the whole like, look, I'm cool. worth it. I-, I know for a fact that I'll get your house sold. I'm 98% successful. I know I'll do it. So I'm worth it. But let's rewind four months ago. We go out, we do pricing for this house. We're bidding competitively. Yeah. And just like if you're dealing with Nordstrom versus Kmart versus, I don't know, let's say Sears, Kmart is always going to win on pricing. Always. Every single time. You will get the cheapest duvet or whatever the hell it is you're buying. Kmart's going to win. We do not pride ourselves on being Kmart. We pride ourselves on being Nordstrom. We do great job for people who have discerning taste. They want it done right the first time. And so sometimes we're not the cheapest. And in this particular instance, we didn't get the work. And we're like, that's okay. We're not for everybody. That's all right. Fast forward four months later, they have not sold their house. They have now spent over $8,000 on home staging to not sell their house. So do you think they were really looking for a budget stager? Yeah, and they got a budget stager. They got budget staging. And they they got it for a lower monthly rental rate than what we would have done. Right. And so they got to pay less for a longer amount of time. So I think our total fee on this project was like 6,000 bucks. So we could have done like $6,000 for unlimited home staging uh, and it would have worked out great. But instead they spent $8,000 with a quote unquote less expensive home staging. Our top service, let me say top service by meaning we're staging the entire home top to bottom. Every space you're saying would have been six grand. For as long as it takes. Yes. Yep, for as long as it takes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So our top service still beat out a budget stager price because of how long right. it stayed on the market. Well, because you got to realize like the longer the house stays on the market, the more money the home stager makes. Yeah, exactly. Like that's, that is so backwards to me. So they call us up and they're like, okay, we use this other stager. It didn't work. We're going to move out of the house. By the way, they stayed occupied in the house. Like they're oh, still living there. We're going to move out of the house. Occupied. We want to go guaranteed. We don't have any more money we want to spend on this. So we want, we, can you come in and help out with this? We're like, yep, yeah, absolutely. No problem. We show up at the job site that day and we realize that there is an ADU. There's a second house on the site and somebody's living there. And we're like, hey, if you're going to live at the site, we're going to charge you the higher rate because it's harder to sell occupied houses. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, we can't just move out today. We're like, no, no, no. We understand you can't move out today. We didn't know about the ADU miscommunication. We get it. We'll give you two weeks to get out of the ADU. We'll Mm -hmm. go back in. We'll stage it. And then, you know, we'll keep you at the low rate. And so the house went on the market. It stayed on the market for two weeks with the ADU occupied by the seller. Photographs look like occupied photographs. 
I don't want to be a judgy bitch, but <laughs> occupied photographs are never as good as vacant stage projects. They just don't ever look good because yeah. when you stage a project from scratch, it's one mind doing one creative direction, making it look perfect for that photograph. If you live there, you got crap out like your CPAP machine and, you know, <laughs> your lube is on the table and, you know, your undershorts are hanging on the... the your your junk, describing. your mail, your stuff, I'm in, your I'm life. In my bedroom, I'm describing what my bedroom looks like, yeah. So we said, go ahead and, and get this stuff out. So they, they decide they're going to move out. In two weeks, they're going to move out. They're going to move into their RV. They're going to take a trip across the country. They are just dead set. It's going to take a long time to sell this house. We write to the agent. We're like, okay, we're going to stage the ADU on Thursday. Let's get those photographs done on Friday. Let's get it posted so that we can then be on the market with the right photographs here that weekend. Lo and behold, we stage the house. They put the photographs up and that weekend it sells. They go pending. So they were staged with us for a total of two weeks weeks and two days, 16 days to get wow. this thing sold under our guaranteed product. I would have loved to have been in the room when they found that out. Me too. They're <laughs> probably really pissed off at us. <laughs> <laughs> but, but here's the thing is that like, you not only wasted the $8,000 that you spent with the other stager, you also paid taxes, yep. mortgage, yep. insurance, principal, interest, you paid all these things, plus your life is on hold during those four months that you have that budget stage in your house and it's not selling. Like it just makes no sense to me at all. And so that was my like total win of the day. It made me so happy. And we are getting phone call after phone call after phone call. About 50% of our business right now is stale donuts who call us and say, we tried with somebody else. It didn't work. Can you please come save us? And what I would love to propose is like, hey, how about if we don't have to be the like second choice? What if you just use it the first time? Um, I think I think it's a really exciting time uh, as as history has shown in all businesses, in all business, not just real estate, but market changes really change how businesses operate. And I think this is a really exciting time for us because we really get to put money where our mouth is because we've been talking about well-prepared homes <laughs> and paying from closing for a long ass time. <laughs> well before this ever came around. So we're just like, we're on autopilot over here with the same messaging. And I think that Exactly. To your point, I think what will occur over time is agents, more agents will realize and maybe probably take a stronger stance on doing it right from the beginning and staging it correctly from the beginning and being able to explain to their clients. I mean, this is all me wishing out loud, right? This is all like my wish list. Like what agents <laughs> will be able to make really strong points about not just engaging a stager, but engaging the right stager or the right photographer or the all, the, all of the right correct vendors from the start in order to move these homes and sell in a super timely way and ideally over asking and that happens with our clients all the time time. yes in a global pandemic so it's like this is equal opportunity it's just like the messaging and the belief systems and the stigmas have to switch and catch up to kind of like a new real estate market i mean our sale numbers they show the proof is in the pudding with guaranteed it's 98 percent effective with pay up front full staging it's 93 percent effective when we start doing partials we get down to 86 percent which is like you know a B and I don't know about you but I was never satisfied with B's in school I wanted A's and I'm good with 93 I'm good with 98 I would be better with 100 but you know you can't get them all but I heard you had some good news Kelly about some trademarks going on what's going on there oh yeah so well what's fun for me is um you know I do messaging and all of the the branding and all that all those things and you know, we always talk about how we are the first home staging company to uh, have this guaranteed program that you came up with. And now, you know, we got to share this week that it has its own trademark. So we have a couple of trademarks now as a company, which is so cool. I mean, how many home stagers do you know with trademarks? Um, and we really get to, you know, put that little cool symbol around guaranteed home staging. It's so exciting. I mean, and and now like, not only are we the world's first guaranteed home stager, like it's trademarked, like nobody else can even use it. Like it's so awesome. And we do, we see, we see other home stagers that are out there that are doing, you know, financed home staging, which means that whether it works or not, you're still going to pay that right. person, but now you get to pay them with interest. 
Woohoo! And if your average credit card company is 18% right. interest, you're looking at somewhere between 25 and 35% interest for your home staging. By the way, with, with Spade and Archer, guaranteed no interest at all. We don't charge interest. We don't have, that's not even part of our business model. So like, imagine that previous example that we just talked about, they would have paid, say they didn't have the money and they financed right. the staging. Right. That didn't work, by the way. If they financed it, they'd, be, they're, they'd still be paying off that eight Plus grand, interest. So if you're looking at like, 25% interest Ugh. on eight grand, then you're looking at like, what is that? Another $2,000 over the course of a year. And they're offering like 30 years no. on these things. So like you want to pay no. $2,000 a year for the next 30 years to have your house staged. That sounds horrific to me. It's so crazy. Especially like just when you can pay from closing and have it be that and you're never going to think about, I kind of like it. I think we've done a really great job. If our clients can hire us, have us come in, do our job, sell their house, and like not think about us. Like I don't want people thinking about us and paying bills to us forever and ever and ever. Like we just want to come in, do our thing, sell your house, and get out of your life. Get out of your hair. I want you to think about long enough to write a review on Google and that's it. I want them to, to just write a review and then totally forget about us forever. <laughs> Let's make it easy. You know, if someone wants to talk talk us up at their next dinner party or whatever, sure, knock yourselves out. We love referrals. Which, by the way, I hear that Kelly makes a fantastic dinner guest. So if you get a chance, invite, invite me over. Yeah, I like eating too. So yeah, that's super cool. I'm, I mean, we, we love talking about just stale donuts in general right now. We love talking about staging from the beginning. We love talking about properly listing from the beginning. We are so consistently, like I, I feel like we've earned this trademark for no other reason than we are educating <laughs> like every single day agents on what this program is. So I'm just like, you bet your ass no one's gonna else is gonna be able to call this any kind of program in their business guaranteed because we're doing all the educating on it. Like that's the that's the elbow grease we're bringing to the table. Uh, are you ready to go talk to Janelle? She's waiting in the green room. <laughs> yeah, in the green room. I love it. Yes, I can't wait. Again, it's it's so fun for me because. These are all like your people because you've been involved in this town, this business for so long. So I get to like meet these people in their like spotlight. Like it's so fun for me to be introduced to these people this way. So yes, I would love to meet Janelle. It's interesting, especially in a world right now when when everything is on Zoom and we don't get to talk to each other in person anymore. To actually meet a new person and get a chance to sit down and talk with somebody that's not through Instagram is amazing. You know, with an Instagram post, you can edit and rewrite about 3,000 times. Hear people just say shit and you're like wow, I, I can't believe you said that well what's really interesting too and I think this might be a, a good piece of advice if anyone's trying to get exposed to really experienced people is like I think through this podcast and just through zoom and everyone kind of being more at home I think we're getting we're getting people to come out and they're being so generous with their time to be on our show because they're home and they have like time for us like so I feel so spoiled because I'm getting exposed to all these really awesome super interesting people who have totally worked their ass off they've been available to speak to us. Like, I just feel so lucky just of that. So I'm super grateful because Janelle's busy AF. Yeah, she not only is a real estate agent, she owns a real estate agency company. Uh, and, and here's the thing is that like, you know, we reach out and we ask people to be on the show, but really like, I would love it. If you're listening to this show and you're interested in being on here, don't wait for me to reach out and ask you. Don't wait for Kelly to reach out and ask you. Reach yeah. out to us, say it, let us know. You've got an interesting story as to how you got here. And we'd love to talk to you. Give me a call. Cool. We'll make it happen, man. All right, let's go. <laughs> All right, let's go talk to Janelle, dude. All right, well, hi, everybody. We are so lucky to have Janelle Isaacson with us, um, owner of Living Room Realty here in Portland. And so Justin and Janelle, you guys have been longtime friends. It's through, it's through Entrepreneurs Organization, right? Well, even before yeah, that. Really? Before that. Yeah. yeah. When I first opened my company, Justin came in, he was just starting his company and did a pitch to our office. And I felt like in my head, I was just thinking, we're going to be friends. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Janelle actually sent me my first employee. I think we both started like the for the same year, right? Yep. You started in 2009? Yep, 2009. Uh, Janelle is a better business person than I am, which is why her no. company is bigger <laughs> than mine, but it's not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I, uh, I've never had the pleasure of meeting you before, so I'm so glad you're here and it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. So thank you for coming on the show with us. 
Yeah, thanks, Kelly. We love talking to experienced veterans in real estate, and you definitely qualify as that. What we'd love to know, and I think our listeners would love to know, is how you got started in real estate and why. Well, I've been licensed now for 18 years. I got my license in 2002. She was four. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, you know, I was in my mid-20s, actually, and I was working as an artist and a musician. I had just moved to Portland in 2000. I was in a girls punk band and we had been doing a national tour and I kind of convinced everybody why we were out to move back to um, my hometown, which is Portland. Let's go back there. Let's be based there. I've always been a really long-term thinker. I knew that like my life as an artist and a musician, that everyone in my family is a nurse, a teacher, I work for the state. And so they were constantly hounding me about what are you going to do for retirement? What are you going to do for benefits? Mm -hmm. How are you going to take care of yourself? You know, how do people do that? And so I started seeing examples of other artists and musicians I knew that had bought a house, found a way to buy a house, and they were renting out the rooms. And it was giving them the freedom for some security. And I also thought, wow, okay, well, then in 30 years, at least I know I'll own my home. So it was really like, like a survival instinct that got me looking at purchasing my first home. And when I accomplished that, I felt like my whole world changed. I was still playing in the punk band at that time. And I'd get off the stage and hop up at the bar. And I would be like, did you know you can buy a house? And I, I just wanted to tell everybody <laughs> you how they not. could do it. Yeah, I just was like, how to do it? And I was referring all of these clients to my stepmother, who is an agent. And she goes, have you ever thought about getting a license yourself? I mean, not that I don't love all the referrals, but like, you're out there telling everybody, like, why don't you help them? I immediately thought, what? Realtors? I mean, that's a real job. It, my identity at that time, I just, it, that was a really big leap to make it. And, you know, I knew her in real estate, but that just seemed so strange. So eventually I did. I got my license and, and I found I did have kind of this captive audience because nobody at the time in Portland in the market in 2002 was targeting artists, musicians, like specifically speaking to them, people that lived alternative lifestyles. And so I kind of, I had this captive audience and my career took right off. I'm an East Coaster. So for me, that's like the most hilarious Portland thing. Like, of course you were in a punk band and now you own a real estate company. Yeah. Like that is so yeah. fantastically Portland. That's amazing. It is. <laughs> it is. Janelle, you just, you're playing this rock band. You're talking to all these people. Yep. You get your license. You go to work for a local company, Hassan, Yep, right? Hassan Company. But at some point you're like, hey, you know, it'd be cool if I started my own company. Yeah. So what was that push? And yeah. how did that happen? You know, Mike Hassan was a tremendous mentor leader, and he really shaped how I thought about real estate. I, I don't think there's anyone in the industry that does a better job of articulating the value of experience and the value of a really great realtor. I and mean, this seems so funny now talking about it, but there was no one at the time that was showing real people living in real houses. It was all this facade that we were marketing to, I just felt invisible. Like, you know, I was showing up to company meetings and I've got eyeliner, you know, halfway down my face and I'm a little bit punk rock. <laughs> a lot of my clients are queer, people of color. And so I didn't see me or my community or Portland for that matter. I mean, we're talking about Portland, Oregon. You know, there was a moment I think where frustration grows into the opportunity, flaw opportunity, as you would say. And you know, and being a performer, being an artist, I think I had this like ding, ding. Oh, I have a captive audience. Like I know how to get on that stage and talk to these people. And I was saying, wow, there's this way of having a business where you can be totally authentic and have this kind of Portland-esque brand and like, could I do that with real estate? So it was less of a business decision than in like, this is my new art project. And I, I knew very little about actually operating a true business. And I kind of just jumped in feet first. And the, as I was dreaming this up was 2007, 2008, and jumped straight into the crash of the housing market. Did you tell your boss, you were like, actually, I'm going to start a new company. It's going to be called Living Room. Like, what, what did that conversation look like? We, there were just, no one left the Hassan company. They had a going away party for me. That's cool. It's unheard of in the industry. And yeah. Unheard of. You know, Mike and I were friends and he just said, hey, if this doesn't work out, you know, you always have a place here. And being at a company now where I have had 
I think seven different firms now spin out of Living Room and become our direct competition. I've helped other firms get ready and get started. It says a lot about a leader, how they leave a company. And I left with Mike in conversations and transparent and like, and only good things to say. Like I owed mm-hmm. him everything. He raised me, right? That's not always the case. And then also, I've also tried to remember to hold out the olive branch because what you realize, you get a few d- years down the road and running the business and you're alone. Nobody knows what you're going through besides the person you just left. And so tearing down the person that you left is a mistake because you're probably yeah. going to really need them. The day you stepped out the door, you had to get a brand and a name and a website and a space to rent and desks yeah. and computers and all that shit. Yep. What was the thing that seemed overwhelming at that time? Well, a lot of that I had done before I left. I was preparing. You know, market was super hot. It was 2007 and I was getting ready, mm. preparing. You were preparing for it, for the hot market. I was preparing for the <laughs> hot market. No there. Yeah. yeah. And for it to open the company. <laughs> so it was, I mean, really like the stuff that was hard was like I had disability insurance through Hassan. Getting disability insurance. I also had a baby in 2007 and I had another baby in February of 2009. So I'm also nursing and have a toddler baby in diapers as this is happening. And the second one's a total surprise, right? Like I didn't know I was pregnant with her until four months in. So I was like, whoa, 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 wait, I'm opening up a real estate company. So I gave birth to her a week after we opened the doors and moved in. So I think a lot of what I was struggling with was much more personal than business. And a gentleman that I started my career with at Hassan, Greg Washington, who's been in the business forever. He's loud. He's hilarious. He's been selling real estate in Northeast Portland forever. And I owned a little commercial building before I opened living room that I was going to put the business in. And I thought, oh, this is cute. It's like a couple doors off Alberta Street. It'll be quiet. It'll be a good place for me because I'm going to have the babies. And he comes and he's like, hey, are you settled on your location? And I was like, oh, I think, I mean, my business cards literally get printed tomorrow. Yeah, pretty set, pretty settled. And he goes, hold the presses. Like you got to lease this space from Rosalind Hill. And it's on, on 14th in Alberta where Case Study Coffee is now. It was right on the main street, right next to Tin Shed. And he's like, you got to jump on this like think about the exposure it's entirely glass open to the busiest cafe and tin shed had just gotten voted america's number one breakfast spot on pbs uh yes before that America's so, number one longest line people yeah. just stand there for hours looking oh, in your office it was insane yeah. so they were just like they're lined up it's a captive audience and i just thought yeah i have a two babies i'm nursing inside this glass box like it felt exposed but i but i had to be reminded at that time my assistant actually was like we got to do this. And I'm like, you think so? She's like, we got to do this. And it's like, okay. Anyway, so going on adding a main street address was so important because as a new brand, they could just immediately see me. And immediately we started getting calls. Oh, I see you're an expert in this neighborhood. You know, we've been there two weeks, right? But like, we're there and we're invested in the community. And then also, this is 2009. And I think the last 10, 11 years have been the biggest boom in Portland's history. And here we were at the front end of that, not knowing like everybody and their mother would be moving soon. New York Times started writing about Portland weekly. We became, you know, in Japan, you, you know, you're traveling there and you're like, oh, you're from Portland, Oregon? You know, it's just like all of a sudden we were on the radar nationally and here we are at this spot and it just, it was huge for exposure. It's just, we got so lucky. When you think of real estate, Janelle, you think of real estate agents is heavily female, lots of women. Yeah. And in dealing with the companies that we've dealt with, when we get to the managing broker level or above, it tends to become male and not only male, but like white, heterosexual, tall, big jawed bros. And you are like the antithesis of that. I mean, you can't tell Janelle's not standing up, but I think she's like, what, four foot three? Uh, maybe uh, maybe a hundred pounds soaking wet. Like she's tiny. What empowered you? What told you like, you know what? You should go ahead and do this. What was the driving force behind that? Well, I was never told I couldn't. I think coming from an arts background, coming from growing up in Oregon with parents that were just like, you can do do anything. I'm embarrassed to say now I wasn't even really aware of 
sexism as an issue, I don't think. I mean, like I had not awakened to to a lot of things until becoming an entrepreneur. And then everywhere I went, I had was somehow challenging someone's mm-hmm. assumption. But mm-hmm. I had never challenged anyone's assumption before as just like a small town Oregon girl. And, you know, and I think because I wasn't a business person and I was coming from this place of like, this is just like a creative expression that I want to do. I want to do this. You know, I've thought about it a lot now is just to like, you just described the archetype of CEO. And yes, was I the archetype of CEO? No, I'm a, I was a young nursing mother, like babe on the boob. Like that is not in yeah. our minds what we think of when we think no. of like CEO killer. But there's, I think that that's why it's so important to me. The living room's doing what we're doing just as far as the transparency of like, let's show real people in real houses. Let's show how people really live. Let's show what this community is really made up of. Because one of the things that people often overlook in policy is the fastest growing segment of the workforce is women with children under age three years old. So that's actually what our workforce looks like is women nursing children. That's the fastest growing segment. And with the market crash, people were suddenly figuring out like this system that we're in is not working because I need a safe place to go to work and be able to have my kids because I don't have the same sort of money or resources or support for childcare. But you know, we saw the repercussions of that when Nike didn't get together with their with a very progressive policy for their working moms. Just they had a talent drain. You saw things pop up like Pom Pom Social and all these like entrepreneurial women that used to work there as designers being like, we're going to do our own thing. They have literally forced us to have to go out and figure out our own thing because we're not getting the support we need in our companies. And I think, you know, I had was offering this space where other women and other men too and fathers were like, I'm kind of being forced out of my company to make some choices that I need to make that are going to provide me with some more balance. And not only that, I'm also like so deliriously high and out of it because I have two new kids. I've started this business. The market has crashed. And I'm like, well, I didn't have time to pay attention to the bad news. So I'm just having fun because I'm like living my dreams and we're having art shows. And I think people were just like infectiously attracted to the joy. In their company, people are like crying over spilt milk, like the market's hard and I'm going to get out of this now that it's not easy. And it just was a life force drain. And then they came over to me and they were like, um, she's birthing businesses and babies in a recession yeah. over here and she's fine and she's, <laughs> and she's four fine. feet tall like so suck it up <laughs> okay suck i'm up. five three when... for the record five three <laughs> okay five, 117 right. so sometimes when gay people start things people are like oh that's a thing for gay people <laughs> or asian people have a tv show like that's for asian people or if oh, black yeah. people start a group like that's for black oh. people was there an assumption that living room was going to be like the women's real estate company yeah you know it's so funny is that a few years into living room being up our roster actually had more men on it percentage than many of our competitors we're really almost 50 50 for forever what's considered the norm it's usually like more like 30 70 in a lot of the in a lot of the companies 70 percent women yeah yeah Yeah. you know and it's changed a lot it's really changed a lot i've seen lots of young men in real estate i think real estate the level of professionalism or the view of it as a professional career has changed a lot and so you get um, more men that have been attracted to the industry but anyway i two years in, I was like, why do people keep asking me if this company is just for women? It was like someone needed to beat me over the head and just be like, because they've never seen a woman own a real estate company. It was going, it was shooting like right over your head. Yeah, I was like, what? Is there something in our brand? I'm like, what? (laughs) It's all hearts and flowers. Yeah. Like, you know, little kitty cats. No, totally. (laughs) Like, I didn't, I don't write in bubble letters. Like, I just, the the hell. So anyway, yeah, just realizing and we had a vendor once come in, was selling us some kind of product and he looked around the room and he was like, a lot of women here. But that's lots of drama. Sold. Yeah, I was like, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. So when Living Room expanded and I was looking for our second location and I started working a lot in the commercial real estate industry, we'd have a conversation. I'd be there with my agent and then the other guy on the other side would be like, so who are we waiting for? And I'm like, oh that's my me. God. Or you want to go home and talk to your husband about it? And that <gasps> is when I started really queuing in to like, 
Oh, wow. Like outside my little bubble of progressive punk rock artists, the world needs to wake up. There's a straight heteronormative thing that goes on out there. I, yeah. When my first employee was a female and we would go to our consultations together and people would automatically assume that we were married and she was my wife and I owned the company and she was my assistant. And whenever I'm on any job site with any woman, it is always assumed that I am the person who is in control. Yeah. And I'm usually there just to shadow and watch and it's actually the person that I'm with is actually running the consultation. Yeah. I feel like when I open my mouth, a handbag full of rainbows pops out and like people like clearly he's gay what part of me screams <laughs> heteronormative to you we forget what we look like from the outside yeah. and that what people perceive of us obviously all these en- environmental things really shaped the beginning of your business the pending mm-hmm. recession you having kids what kind of flop opportunity as we call it do you think was most influential in the brand you have now a big one just going back to the beginning was that you know when i was going out to recruit agents I could not look at their numbers as any indication of their future success because no one was selling anything. And some of the best agents were selling even less because they were telling people, hold on, this is not the year. An excellent agent in my office, Lance Mars, who had an amazing career, and he was telling his people, hold on. He sacrificed his own sales and financial to put his clients' interests first. And that's what most of us were, you know, most of us great agents were doing. And so I had to look for other key And we still recruit like this today. It's been such an opportunity for us to hold true to our values because we aren't obsessed with the producing. It's just like, your production doesn't matter to me. I built the company having it not matter to me. It was just like, do you give back to your community? Do you coach Mm -hmm. a little league team? Like, how are you invested? Because I know that when the market returns, your community will come back and and return that support Mm -hmm. to you. And those are the type of people we had an open air office. Those are the type of people you can work in an open air office with. Like people think of living room agents and they're just like, they're the nicest. They're so great to work with. They put deals together. They're the collaborators. They're problem solvers. One of the opportunities for us is that we had no other choice because the way that our physical constraints were when we started being an open air office meant that like we had to have agents that could talk and hold themselves in a room full of other agents. And that also helped coach all those other agents that were sitting in the room, like hearing a master like Kareem sure. Aladdin on the phone, you know, negotiating out and coaching his clients, you know, they're walking away with just invaluable tools and they're hearing years and years of experience. So I think that was one thing that, that was a big opportunity. And I think that, you know, now with COVID, we're going to see a lot of just like, whoa, what look like this is terrifying turning into these opportunities. And I think one of, you know, one of those is just like finally getting people to embrace um, some of the technology. And so like now everybody's done a Zoom call. Now like relocating is not going to be such a hurdle for for agents. They're going to be able to take someone through on a, a Zoom tour and, you know, some other things where people before people felt like they had to fly out and look. You know, and it's just like, what a tremendous waste of resources. You'd miss good houses because they couldn't get there physically. And so, and I think the fact that we've been doing relocation services since we started, is going to really help, just really help drive at least our company growth. Because we were one of only two firms that does um, tenant placement services. So we help people actually find rentals. And that was just a product of being at that 10 shed line, being right in front of that line, in front of 10 shed, person after person from big cities like New York or LA or Chicago oh. where that's common would come in and they'd be like, hey, we want to find a rental. Can we talk to one of your real estate agents? And we're like, oh, we don't do that. Well, who in town does it? No one. And I'm like, if I tell someone no one does that one more time. And so, yeah. I, so I called up Aaron Hartman in New York City. He's from originally from Portland and recruited him out from Brooklyn. And that's what he was doing there. And I was like, we need you. I've got a line of people all day long that are asking me who places tenants. And that's still a huge part of his business here. Uh, our companies are like our children. When did you realize that Living Room is no longer your company, that you are Living Room's owner? Yeah. When did that become a, when did that transition for you? Um, 
I mean, I think part of that had to become a very conscious choice. And that happened at the moment that I gave up being the person on the front lines with my clients, where I was like, okay, I can either sell real estate really well, or I can run a company really well. But I would challenge anyone who tells me they can do both. And there are people out there that do it. I don't know. They're superhuman. They are superhuman. But the type of strategic, long-term, focused, creative thinking to lead a company is totally different than the putting out fires of selling real estate. The sacrifice and the willingness to kind of like, okay, you know, and that came for me three or four years in where I was just like, I can't do both and I have to decide, you know, what what's my path. So jumping off that path, I mean, I think that was about my third or fourth year into business. And it's also when I started having a lot of agents leave because they were like, oh, whoa, you're going to make this a real company. This isn't a clubhouse. We're all going to hang out and be peers and friends and you're one of us. You went through a transition with Living Room where your signs were brown with, with white writing on them. Yep. And it was kind of like a bunch of circles that were connected yep. by lines in it. And then all of a sudden one day you went through like this massive rebrand. You're yep. now like red, white, and bluebird blue. Is that all right around the same time when that happened? Like, so it was yeah. a very constant decision for you. Yeah, it was a it was a huge decision because, you know, when I started the company, it didn't occur to me I was going to have in a few years 50 agents. Like I didn't, right. that's not what I set out to do. I just set out to be like, huh, you know, could I survive showing these like freaky people and houses, you know, that I work with? Like, I didn't think I was going to attract the movement that I did. It wasn't intentional. I didn't set out initially to build the company I built. And so I think that people showed up and then I was like, wow, oh, I've got to learn to lead. Like I've got to How many think, agents do you have now? Uh, 130 of our- 130. And more yeah. if we count assistants and team members and things like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, we just brought on four people today. Um, today. <laughs> yeah. So we have a real estate company. We have a property management company and we have an all female maintenance team. So we have three companies within the company. So it's about a community of probably with assistance and other stuff, probably about 165, something like that. You know, when I was designing the brand for me, you know, I didn't think about like, can you see these signs all over town? They were brown in Portland. It's very hard to see brown and gray, mm -hmm. you know, in the rain. And like mm -hmm. the font was small. And, you know, and then I started having agents that were older, like you can't read the font. And it's like, God, you're, you know, like my 20 year old eyes could. It's great when you're 20. Yeah. yeah. And like, now I realize when I, now that I'm wearing reading glasses, I'm like, oh gosh, like That's what talking I about. didn't yeah. see it. So, but yeah, we went through a rebrand and also we, at that time, you know, I was like, I want to be a great leader. I hear great leaders have values and missions and, and a vision. So I Googled it, you know, and I was like, <laughs> determining your values. And there was this list of 200 values. And so I made photocopies. I just, I gave it to everybody that was in the organization. We probably had about 50, 50, 55 agents at the time. We were battling with each other for two months. Because you, when you're talking about fighting for what values it, you are going to be on the wall when you're done, like people were, they brought passion. They, everyone that helped me build Living Room has brought so much love and commitment. I've been so lucky. And I think out of that, one of my biggest ahas in business was when we got through this process, the thing that was far beyond any other words was diversity. And I felt so exposed. It was amazing. And I felt terrified. What was terrifying about that? I am from Estacada, Oregon, an all white community in rural Oregon. I did not feel like I had the chops or the leadership or I was the person to be leading a company that was telling me diversity is our number one value. And, you know, and I was like, I had to look at myself and be like, I have some personal work to do. It's really scaring me. But what was so cool was like right after we did that, we had an anniversary party. I think it was our fourth anniversary party. I remember walking into the room and looking around. And I was like, this is actually the most diverse group of people I've ever been in in Portland. And it's not up to me. I've got 50 people I'm going to lean into and learn from. And they've told me this is important to them because it is because they're already doing the work. And so I'm just so thankful because my companies, they called me in. And right now we're in this time of a lot of people calling each other out. And I'm just extremely humbled by that experience of being called in to be bigger, to be called in mm -hmm. to be greater. And the second story I'll share about that was Joy was on there. It was like number two or three, you know, it's like Joy. We had diversity, connection, and Joy were the, were the three big ones. And I was like, I'm like really uncomfortable with that. And 
And so I came to the morning, the meeting that morning and I'm like, I don't know guys about the joy thing. And Kari McGee, like, it was like I lit her on fire. She stood up and she was like, God damn it, Janelle. Like we are here because of your joy. That's you. That's who you represent. That's why all of us came here. This is why the company was built. And I was like, oh, like all of a sudden the realization of like, oh, that's why I want to kill it because I have a story that I'm not enough. That for some reason, the thing that makes me so special and unique in the world as a leader is not enough. That I'm supposed to look like that other paradigm that I've been rejecting. And I was still holding on to that story. Did joy, because it is something that is a touchy-feely, more emotional thing, did it feel like because it wasn't like, you know, one of our core priorities is our profit and loss. Yeah. Like, did it feel too female to you and therefore weak and we were believing our own stereotypes? What made you push against? it so hard because like if, if I were describing you one of the first things that I would say is she's a very joyful person she's yeah. always happy yeah someone wrote me an email today Kylie Ladd from Cairo she actually was like I'm gonna drink your joy juice I was laughing and laughing and I was just like oh my god it's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me um I think it's a lot of that yes and I think it's also because it's so vulnerable and mm-hmm. as a leader David White writes about my favorite poet David White writes about this a lot and you know you put yourself out and you can be hurt joy is a place that I can be hurt and I sat with my manager once in a recruitment meeting and I remember him telling the agent he's like what makes living room different and he goes love and I was literally like rocking in my chair like I'm gonna pass out because I wanted to come with the stats and the performance and our years of experience and I you know I have to sit with that and be like yeah that's why it hurts when people leave that's why I wake up and I don't want people to know that you know it's just like it's love it's joy and when people tell me oh it's just business I'm like are you alive have you lived a moment of life because it's not we pour everything into what we do and, and most of us do when I was a little boy my parents had a florist and his name was Tom and he was the only gay person in my life and Tom would come over and my mom and him would talk about the silk arrangements that they were going to arrange because, you know, those are yeah. silk Yeah. because she was fancy. And after Tom would leave, my mom and my dad would talk about how terrible it was that he was gay and how horrible he was as a person because he was a homosexual. Oh. I had made myself a promise that if I turned 30 years old and I had a gay job, like being a florist, that I would either kill myself or stop and go back to school. Yeah. Because being gay was bad. Yeah. I went to school. I got a degree in architecture, which is a very masculine field. Yeah. I became a wrestler. I was a boy scout. (laughs) I started in college. I was like, I'm going to be a cheerleader. I'm going to take a little step here and like be a little bit gay. And (laughs) I was rewarded because I was good at it. Yeah. And it was not until almost almost 15 years into my career as an architect and a general contractor that I broke down and I said, I'm really good at home staging. I want to exploit that and use that to make money. Yeah. And it wasn't until I accepted myself for who I was as a gay man that I was able to actually reach a level of success that I had never been at before. I was like, okay at this and okay at that. Profiting off of your joy, profiting off of my gayness. These are things that if we were all telling our children, like someday you're going to find something that you love and you do and if you love it you're gonna make a shit ton of money at it yeah and if we can figure out how to help our kids find that position it would just i know know my parents didn't mean to make me feel bad about being gay but i mean it was just pounded into my head on a a daily basis strong message it's a strong message yeah really strong i think you know too joy has been the hardest one for me to at times defend too i had a group of disgruntled agents i had you know during our rebrand they didn't like the new brand and change is hard changes change is hard, change is hard. hard. Yeah. and you know and I listened and we got to the point where it's like okay I have I've done everything I can to kind of bring you with me and now I'm starting to fear walking in the door being attacked for you know whatever it is my company gave me permission to protect my joy but like who am I who am I to get to mm-hmm. have that and it wasn't until I noticed my staff let me know that they were bullying them too you know and that they were like starting to like you know get scared when they got in the office that I was like okay this this stops and and it, you know and I just have to remember until a value is a fireable offense it doesn't mean anything. When I let them go, I was terrified because we had already had a lot of agents go at that point. And 
you know, I think a lot of people knew that like the cut had been deep enough that we were going to be in trouble. It was also the moment that everyone saw that I was standing up for what we had all created together. And that was the moment that like our business just took off. We had a short trench and then, you know, we won Oregon Ethics and Business Awards and, and we just started getting top producers coming to us in droves because it was like all of a sudden people got it. It's the real deal. And people stood up and said, you've proven to me that you care more about our culture than profits. That means something to me. Yeah, but it's hard. It's hard, especially when some of these values are so closely aligned with yourself because it's sticking up for yourself. Every time we go through a transition, we have lost two or three really big clients. But what happens is that it kind of like shakes up our tree and it gives us room to bring in like 20 new really big clients and our company grows. And when you do that innovation and you think your people are going to come with you and they don't, you really start questioning yourself. You're like, oh shit, my people didn't like what we did. They were used to what we used to do and they wanted back the old way. And now I see me going through, this is like my fifth or sixth innovation that we've gone through. I see my employees being like, oh my God, we lost this client. And we're like, that's ah, okay. But we'll find some more. Yeah. You, <laughs> it's going to be all right. You get yeah. you more used to it. And that's say it with agents. That was something actually at the Hassan Company I used to teach a class around boundaries. And it was, you know, how to have a personal life and a business life. Because coming from the art world, I was like, these guys are crazy. They're working all the time. Yeah. Like you guys all make time. enough money. <laughs> you don't, you barely have to work. I mean, like I came into real estate, like, do you think I'll be able to make the same that I did at my last job, which was $14 an hour, you know? And it was just like, then I got there and I was like, oh, well, this is cool. But then you see the possibilities are endless to what cost. And so I immediately, very beginning in my career, really adopted tools like my voicemail and and the way that I met with clients. I was bucking what the industry did. It was like, I work these hours. I don't work Saturdays. Um, I hired an assistant really early on in my career. And she like, you know, I let her run with clients. I didn't feel like I had to step in. It was her job. And it was interesting because the people I got the most pushback from were not my clients. They were all like, oh, cool. Now we know how you work and we're going to choose to work with you, it was other agents. What do you mean you're not working? Well, what do you do when the phone rings? And it's like, that's part of my business plan is that I don't answer the phone at dinner time. So do I miss a deal or two? Maybe, but that's, that's okay. Like part of your, part of anybody's retail business plan is they could be open 24 hours. We teach people how to treat us. Yeah, you do. You really did seem to have a level of fearlessness. What was like your secret sauce to having the determination and the ambition to stay in, even on when it was hard, to figure out what you were about? I mean, for me, um, financial stability and security gives me a lot of courage. I keep my bills small. I don't buy things until I've got the money to buy them. And, you know, in full disclosure, I was raised by grandparents that survived the Dust Bowl. So, you know, I didn't, I had a hard time buying a house because I'd never gotten a loan for a car or taken any debt in my college or like, we just came over from a family. If you don't have money, you don't buy it. And so... I had no credit when I went to go buy a house. And I still do that today. Like COVID hit, I've got a big company. It's a, you know, there's a lot of people depending on me and I still go down and I'll do like the worst case scenario planning and just be like, are we safe? You know, we were ready for this one. We we have money in the bank and reserves and we've been preparing and we're very, very frugal. So I think that that's one thing that lets me be courageous. And I am the primary income provider for my family. And so I can't take a lot of big risks. And so people are always like, wow, you're such a risk taker. You're so brave. I'm like, they were calculated. Mm -hmm. They were small. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't give up my real estate practice until a living room until I really could see at the point where like, okay, this is where financially I'm going to be able to make this work and keeping my expenses really small. And then I think that I'm really lucky to have, you know, I was raised by a sixth grade science teacher. He's just always been curious. He's a, he's a curious guy. So, you know, when I left in high school, I wanted to go on the Grateful Dead tour and live on the parking lot. And he was like, well, interesting. You know, I think most parents have been like, hell no, but he just got real curious, you know, just like, so you sell, you sell boxes of rice stream. Now what's the return on that? And I never was told like I couldn't be an artist. I never was told I couldn't do what I wanted to do. Like they worried about my financial security a lot. I did hear, 
it would be nice if you married someone with benefits, you know, and I was just like, that's not going to happen. So, um, is that like a first date question? So do you have benefits? (laughs) Do you have benefits? Because my parents are wondering. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to figure out a way to like provide that for, for myself and my family. And to me, what makes me feel the most secure is just really good relationships in the community and like building a lot of support around myself, belonging to organizations like the entrepreneurs organization where I have, you know, that I can come back to the hut and be like, I need help. I think that a lot of people are afraid to look weak or dumb or less than. Oh, I'm good at uh, that. (laughs) You and I... You I and I share that. this very interesting quality that if I don't understand a word in a sentence, I'll be like, I don't know what that word means. Yeah. Tell me what that word means. Yeah. I have watched you for a couple, I mean, for 10 years now. And what mm-hmm. I have found consistent about you is that if somebody is talking about something that you don't understand, you are not one of those people who will pretend. No. You will pipe up and be like, I don't get what the hell you're talking about. So you're going to have to rewind for me for a second. Yeah. And I think <laughs> that takes a lot of courage because you are, you're really exposing yourself. And I think the perfection thing especially women we are so hard on ourselves and we think that and I, I i've done this so many times is that you think that that life's some sort of video game which is not like i played the first level and scored 100 points now someone's going to come and escort me to the next level and i've spent so many times and this is where punk rock being a punk rock musician helped all in the world like we would be booked as the lead band and then the guys would show up and they would just fight for our spot and i'd be like excuse me like we've been on tour all month like this is my gig and so yeah but you see that happen like in politics all the time i don't think like david Wu woke up one morning and was like am i qualified to run for mayor no he just like did it but we have all of these amazing women leaders who will be like well i better attend a conference and then maybe i should get a job with the mayor as an assistant and then i'll work my way up where i feel like oftentimes and this is a gross generalization but just like men will jump right in one of the things that we do on our show is we talk about our highs and our lows Kels. what about your worst day in business ever I worked at the Hassan Company. My best friend at the Hassan Company was a woman named Diane Moreau. She was just like this agent I just loved. And then eventually she came with me to living room and then she became our leader. She was our principal broker, but through cancer wound up passing away. She did not want our agents to know. She continued working. And the day I had to call our agents, our broker advisory group, our leaders to let them know. And it was like one of the worst and also one of like most beautiful days too, because so many of those agents were like, let me keep making phone calls for you you know so I was supported and loved but that's it's so hard to say goodbye to someone that you worked with like that that you just loved and helped shape the company and and we lost an agent to COVID and that was hard you know that's it again it's not just business like it is love and there is joy and there's memories and friendship and you know whether someone leaves or moves or they die it's 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 a lot of grief yeah Uh, Your absolute best day in business. I've had a few. I'm just going to go with this morning. We start our meetings every day with joy shares. And I had like a 12 minute joy share today. We started something called the Loving Room Fund. All of our agents elect to give a portion of their commission to three nonprofits that we all get together and vote on and choose together as a community. And the Urban Gleaners, amazing organization. So they pick up food that would otherwise be thrown away. And then they pick it up. And then they repackage it and they send it to primarily children and the poor and and they're feeding. You know, Oregon has the second worst childhood hunger in America. Urban Gleaners contacted us this week and I got to share with my agents today that we'd reached $100,000. And so they're just taking what we already have. They're just redistributing the abundance. And Tracy Osseron, who started Urban Gleaners here in Portland, just saw she doesn't have to raise money. She doesn't have to do anything. She just has to pick up what someone else is throwing away and get it to people who need it. When we started working with the organization, their annual budget was like $160,000. And they were feeding thousands and thousands and thousands of kids. It was like, this is so efficient and so cool. Anyway, so they became one of the organizations that we support. And that to me it just gives me chills because it's like had I just still been my small little company or eight or ten agents you don't get to change the face of Oregon hunger but you get 130 people together and it's just giving little bits 
but together as a group and the economy of scale, it's just mind blowing what we're able to do. And I just love that. I just love that like our growth, you know, anything healthy grows and that we can be part of, you know, really making significant change. And it was really cool to share that today. Uh, Janelle Isaacson is the owner of Living Room Realty here in Portland, Oregon. Janelle, where can people find you? Oh, well, (laughs) uh, livingroomre.com, our website. They can find all sorts of really great stuff. And then I just use my just regular old name as my handles on Twitter and Instagram. And we have some market update videos. And then you'll see a lot of just me and my two synchronized swimming daughters. (laughs) Fantastic. If you ever get a chance, just Google Janelle. There's so much interesting material out there. She is a total kick in the pants. If you have a story you'd like to share, reach out to us. You can find us at spade-archer.com. Go to the podcast page. It's behind the yard sign. Thanks so much for coming out, Janelle. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Janelle. Okay. Oh my gosh, Justin Janelle's so awesome. She's fantastic, right? Like, how do you pack that much joy into such a little tiny package? She's amazing. I love that she's like this fearless female leader in Portland. She's so Portland through and through, like authentically so Portland. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me at all. Like when she had some of those moments where she was just like, when we decided XYZ to be really authentic, that's when our business blew up. And it just seems like every single time that she has refined herself down to her core values, which is what our favorite turn of phrase here on the show, her business exploded like abundance and like things just exploded so i just like love hearing about amazing stuff she's so sweet and so innocent and she's like this lady said she wants to drink my joy juice and i was like oh is that a euphemism and i wanted to say something terrible and i just held my tongue i held my tongue i was so good good. i'm very (laughs) proud of you for that Thank you. <laughs> now we're going to talk about something though. We love talking about all the controversial stuff. So we're yeah. going to talk about something that was kind of floating around and like, you know, when things in real estate pop up and we're like, should we address this? Should we not? Like, how do we tackle these difficult conversations? Like, what are we doing? You and I talk amongst ourselves and we kind of like, sometimes we'll be on two different sides and sometimes we'll like, we'll actually agree with each other, but like play devil's advocate. One of them that came up was this whole kind of controversy over the name of master bedroom in light of recent civil unrest and Black Lives Matter and all these things. And so I kind of dug in. I was just like, okay, well, what's really going on here? Is this really an issue or is this virtue signaling, right? Which is, you know, is this, is this the thing that doesn't really matter versus a lot of racism and systemic racism that's real inside real estate, let's, right? Let's talk about, let's talk about virtue signaling first. What is that? It just means like, oh, look, I'm here trying to portray a person Posing. that care, cares about this issue. Like, I'm going to post a story on my Instagram about my how I'm reading about anti-racism or whatever. But did you actually read it? You know, like, how are you how are you very tangibly making these changes? What is what is real? What can we change to really affect the core issue and not just look like we're busy with it? And posting about racial issues um, in real estate on social media is a landmine. I mean, it's a it, it's a it's a field of landmines because you go on there and you're post like, I believe Black Lives Matter. And then every Tom, Dick and Harry, because you're friends with like everybody when you're a real estate yeah, agent, yeah, you're yeah. like, you just accept friend requests and people can just like lob bombs at you and be like, you're racist, you're Hitler. And like, it's a really hard place to discuss really nuanced issues is yes. social media. And so I feel like the podcast is the one place that you and I can actually discuss this stuff and express how Spade and Archer feels and how behind the yard sign feels and 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 actually have some nuance behind it. Absolutely. So when this issue about master bedrooms came up, I did some research and because I was just like, well, is this the thing? Because I wanted to be educated, right? Like I was like I had previous lives before being involved in real estate. You know, I'm learning things about anti-racism now all the time. And I'm just like, holy crap, I didn't know any of this stuff was real. So maybe master bedroom was a term that as a white person, it sounds super racist. Like, you know, you, yeah. you don't call it the slave bedroom, you call it the master bedroom. And like, wah, wah. and I'm sleeping in that room every night. Totally. And so what's really interesting, though, is it seems like in some markets, some builders are changing the name of master bedroom or to like primary bedroom instead. I, I was interested, like, does this really have any kind of connotation of like, an owner of a home owning other people? Is this really more of like um, a gendered term, master of the house? Like, is this like about like the, the man, the owner's bedroom? You know, what was this really about? And and again, I can be educated on this, but 
um, by anyone who has better information. But what I really learned was the the actual construction of the larger bedroom with a with a bathroom attached really didn't come around into mainstream until the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And the term was used almost in a nostalgic way um, mm-hmm. in order to make it sound kind of more bougie. Uh, that this fancy space, this bigger space was for the people, the couple or the person who owned the home, who have, you know, the privilege of, you know, or entitled to the largest space in that home. So a lot of that rebranding of spaces goes back to the Levitt brothers. So the Levitt brothers were the first guys that ever built a neighborhood that was a suburb of a city. So after World War II, um, we came back from the war and we had cars with automobiles. And suddenly we had this idea that we could commute to work. And so by commuting to work, these neighborhoods started spreading out throughout the countryside and becoming suburbs. And they built this town called Levittown. And we studied it in school. And my husband actually grew up right next to Levittown. And when I found out that we were going back there, I was like, oh my God, I have to go to Levittown. This is on Long Island. I was so excited to go to Levittown. Joe's like, why? And I'm like, oh my God, it's the first suburb ever. This is fucking amazing. And the Levitt brothers were kind (laughs) of amazing. They had their problems. Levitt brothers definitely had their racial issues, but they also were really cool in some respects. So when they're building this, their idea was that they would sell to like any GI. And in order to get their HUD housing fees, the U.S. government actually required them to segregate the neighborhoods uh, in Levittown. And they made it so you could only sell to white people in order for Levitt to get financing through the U.S. government, the U.S. government made it mandatory that only white GIs could buy houses there. The Leather oh Brothers didn't God. want it that way originally, but they were forced to do so by HUD. And it wasn't until the late 1970s that HUD was forced to be able to sell houses to black people and white people and not discriminate based on race. So, I mean, even the Levittown has like incredibly racist background to it. But here's some of the cool things Levitt Brothers did. Before the Levitt brothers came to the scene, the main space where people sat inside their house was called the parlor. So if you go to a Victorian house, you, Victorian houses are described as having double parlors. You'd have one for men and one for women to sit in. And when somebody died, they, you, you took their dead body right. and you put it in your, in your parlor. You laid yeah. them out and you had like your shit uh, it's called like sitting shiva when you're jewish, jewish uh, yeah. like your wake you 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 have yep. your funeral like right there the yeah. Leather Brothers were like man this room is kind of like the room of the dead and they're like what if what if we had these new businesses that we could open up and we could call them funeral parlors and we could use these businesses to like have these dead people go lay in state and we could visit them. And then we could rebrand this parlor instead of being the room of the dead, we could call it the living room. It's the room for the living. And so it was huh. the, the Levitt no brothers who invented not only funeral parlors, but also living rooms. And in Levittown, we didn't have master bedrooms because it was a three, there were two and three bedroom houses with one bathroom. It wasn't until much later that Levittown grew and expanded. We started adding master bathrooms um, onto those houses. There were four plans. I think it's only like, tw- there was something like 15,000 houses in Levittown. There's only like four original plans of the four original houses. Oh my that gosh. And they're like little museums now. But every single other house has grown over time. But they did this rebranding of, of the living room and the funeral parlor. And that really started to empower builders to rebrand the names of these rooms to to make them, as you say, more bougie, more acceptable, more livable for people that were commuting back and forth. And so the idea was to try and make these like little kingdoms for these people where they could go and they could live. And it wasn't from ante- the antebellum South like um, plantations that it was the master right. who had this master's bedroom. It might have been the master's chamber, but it wasn't ever referred to referred to as the master bedroom. It was kind of nostalgia to be like you're the master of your home, you're the master of your own right. domain. It's like having a master's degree. Uh, that's the way that these things are being used. It's not saying master noun; it's master adjective. And so I think, uh, who was it that posted that post about there are problems, there are racist problems in, in the real estate industry. It's like people not showing black people houses that are qualified for. That's a problem in the real estate industry. Yeah. The word master bedroom, not so much. Who do you remember who posted that was a musician? Um, John legend, John legend, like, and he just summed it up and was like, you guys, let's concentrate on the things that are actually a problem here. And so I think that there are actually a couple of really interesting stories behind 
behind why rooms and things and houses are called things. And so I'll just ramble through a couple of these. When you were very, very poor, this is when housing was first being put together. If you were very, very poor, you referred to as being dirt poor. And what that meant is that your home did not have a foundation or floorboards. The floor of your home was dirt. And if you are that poor, you probably worked the fields. You were a farmer or a farmer's assistant. And the stalks of the wheat that are left over after the wheat seeds are taken off, the wheat berries are taken off, the stalks of the wheat are called thresh. It's just the leftover crap. And when it rains at your house, your, your dirt floor would get very muddy. And so you actually take thresh and you throw it down on the floor. And over the course of the winter, the thresh would start to build up with layer upon layer upon layer and get very, very thick. And it would start to pour out the front door and so you would take a big board and you would put it on the floor at the door and that door would hold the thresh back from pouring out your door and thus that part of the door was became known as the threshold even though we have no thresh in our houses anymore we still call it a threshold so um thresh would also be used to make your roof yeah and when you always would have dogs for hunting you'd always have cats for your rodents if you lived in a rural area if you have a dirt floor you also have pets well one of the warmest places in the house to stay would be up in the thresh of the roof you'd actually crawl in underneath that the pets would crawl up underneath there and the cooking stove from inside the house would actually heat the roof up there well when it would rain really really hard the thresh would get very slippery and the cats and dogs would fall out of the roof and so when it rained really hard you would say oh it's raining cats and dogs because literally cats and dogs used to fall out of your roof when it rained too much so that's so funny around this time that people would that is around bubonic plague around the same time we had dirt floors and thresh roofs and um when people would die, there was fear of their bodies. And so they wanted to try to get them in the ground as quickly as they possibly could. And so you wouldn't have a really long three-day funeral because you're afraid you were going to contract bubonic plague from them. And so they'd throw them in the ground and they realized that they were accidentally burying people alive. And so one of the ways that they tried to prevent from burying people alive is that they would tie a string to your finger and that string would come up to the top of the gravesite and it would be tied to a bell. And if you awoke from your slumber because they weren't really sure if you were dead or not, you would start thrashing your hands around and it would ring this little bell and you would thus be saved by the bell, which is where that expression comes from. Well, the, in order to be saved, yeah, yeah, I swear to God, in order to be saved by the bell, there would have to be somebody who was sitting there next to the bell. You would you would have somebody sit next to the bell for three days because they figure like if you're in the ground for three days, you're really dead. You'd have somebody sit there for three days straight and watch the bell. You'd sit there in the graveyard. And so that that shift that's called the graveyard shift is because you have to work overnight. That's comes from that same expression of during the bubonic plague of being saved by the bell is the graveyard shift and like all these expressions come from that same exact time and it just it cracks me up yeah (laughs) that is so much stuff i didn't know (laughs) and so much stuff that doesn't matter at all but it is very interesting that like a lot of the things that we still call in our house the different names that we have for stuff still comes from like i mean just hundreds and hundreds of years ago and master bedroom is not one of them turns out I've actually really enjoyed learning more about um, housing and racial issues. And I've had, I even saw a friend post something the other day about something that real estate agents will do sometimes. It's just like, oh, if you're having issues with your down payment, can't you just borrow it from a family member? And I had a girlfriend be like, when I bought my house, an agent did this to me. And the answer is no, I don't have a family member who can give me a couple of hundreds of thousands of dollars. (laughs) Like we don't have that generational wealth. And to expect that in the black community or Latino community is so ridiculous in order to uh, facilitate home ownership yeah. in this country. Yeah. And so stats are the lowest for black communities. And so I've really enjoyed learning some of the actual honest to God racial issues 
in and around housing and home Yeah, you talk about which generational is, wealth. And I mean, a lot of times when we're talking about rights of people, we talk about female and black and gay and trans and all of these different areas. And really when it comes down to it, black people have it way harder than any of us because there was literally government yeah. mandates. And when you're a white person and you have had home ownership, like in my family, we've had home ownership for probably 15 or 20 generations. That's 20 generations yeah. of people building wealth consistently over and over and over again. You know, my parents squandered all their money away, but that has nothing to do with me. I had the opportunity. And so to say that white people got a head start over everybody else, absolutely. And black people have had that. It's been just systematically, our government has made it so that they could not own homes. That's a racial problem. Well, from things that don't matter, like living rooms, all the way to things that super, super do matter, like racial discrimination in housing. We, yes. we covered it all in <laughs> this segment. It's all of them, yeah. <laughs> uh, our music is performed and composed by Joff Metz. You can find him at fivestarguitars.com. Um, if you'd like to be a guest on Behind the Yard Sign, please reach out. You can find us at spade-archer.com. Just click on the podcast link. Kelly, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you so much, Justin. See you next all time. Right. Bye. This production of Behind the Yard Sign was brought to you live from the Spade and Archer Studios. Spade and Archer Design Agency is the world's first guaranteed home stager.